Thanks for downloading this History Hub podcast. History Hub is based at the University College Dublin School of History. For more information, go to historyhub.ie. In this episode, In Praise of Forgetting, a talk by the American writer David Reif. The talk took place in Queen's University, Belfast, on the 26th of October, 2017. The event was jointly organised by the Belfast International Arts Festival and Commemorating Partition and Civil Wars in Ireland, 2020-2023, an Arts and Humanities Research Council-funded project led by Dr. Marie Coleman and Dr. Dominic Bryan at Queen's. The project examines approaches to the upcoming centenary of the Partition of Ireland. The talk was recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media and David Reef was introduced by Dr. Marie Coleman. Right, well, first of all, everybody, welcome uh, to Queen's this evening. Um, this event is organised in conjunction with the Belfast International Arts Festival and thanks to everybody there, Richard and Hugh and uh, Karen and Lindsay Ann and all the team for organising, uh, generally organising such a wonderful programme, which, as those of us who live in Belfast know, is one of the highlights of autumn in Belfast. Um, this particular talk tonight is one of a series of events organised as part of a project entitled Commemorating Partition and Civil Wars in Ireland, run by myself and, and my colleague Dr Dominic Bryan and funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council, whose funding has enabled us to organise a wonderful set of talks to date. And previous talks and this one as well are available on historyhub.ie on the website so you can podcast and download everything there. Um, I'm delighted tonight to welcome the American writer David Reef to, to Queen's. David has written on a wide range of issues, including immigration, war, humanitarianism, relationships between food, money and justice. So basically he doesn't write about anything relevant. Um, he's published a number of books and Dominic Bryan first put me onto it, having picked up one of David's, uh, I suppose, a, a publication which gave rise eventually to In Praise of Forgetting, being a historian and liking events and then really kind of liking the fact that people want to remember all these historical events because it's good work for historians. Dominic said, you need to read this. Um, so I read it and like Dominic, I was very taken with it. And when we were organising this event, we, we, David was somebody we really wanted to um, to invite over. So uh, it turns out his his own work and timetable suited with the trip to Belfast, um, as well as as books such as his latest one here in Praise of Forgetting. Um, he's written a wide number of essays and articles for the the leading international publications like the New York Times, the Paris Review, the New Yorker, the New York Review of Books, and and the Guardian. Uh, most recently, like I say, David has turned his attention to the uses of historical memory in modern society. And last year, in 2016, this, his latest book, In Praise of Forgetting, was published by Yale University Press. 2016, of course, was also a year in which the themes of this book, like memory and remembrance of historical events, were central aspects of public policy in Ireland, with the commemoration of the centenaries of the Easter Rising and the Battle of the Somme, those two foundations on which many of the myths and beliefs about the origins of the two Irelands are still heavily based. In general, throughout Ireland and the UK, this is a decade to date which has seen a lot of intense commemorative activity about both the First World War and the Irish Revolution. And while the British might be coming to an end with uh, they're thinking the war ended in 1918, um, in the Irish context, most of the contested events which will be commemorated are still ahead of us in the next five or six years. Because that, that's 100 years ago. And most, more recently, in this part of the island, legacy issues deriving from the Troubles are central questions of public policy 
and probably part of the challenges that uh, the folks on the hill seem to be have trouble overcoming at the moment. So I think in a society in which the past still retains such power and resonance, the questions posed by David in his book and, and that he'll pose in his talk tonight about why we remember, should we remember, would it be better just to forget, I think are highly relevant. And I'm very pleased then to, um, to introduce David to challenge us on how we face up to our past. Thank you. Um, thank you for coming out. It's a beautiful day, which actually I think gives you more of an excuse for staying away than for attending this. But uh, I'll try to make it worth your while. Let me start with a story. Uh, uh, in, the, er, in the first part of the 1990s, between basically 1991 and 1995, I was uh, uh, a correspondent in the Balkan Wars. Uh, I started in Croatia, and then I spent most of the Bosnian War in Bosnia, uh, mostly in Sarajevo, but certainly not only. And one in 1993, I went to Belgrade, Serbia, to interview a very interesting nationalist politician called Vuk Draskovic, who was simultaneously an extreme Serb nationalist, but against the government of the day, the Milosevic government. We had an interesting interview and as I was but as I was leaving his office one of his uh, assistants uh, uh, people on his staff uh, gave me a folded piece of paper and said open this when you're in the cab going back to your hotel so I played along and when I got into the cab to go back to the hotel I opened the paper and what was inside was simply the numbers one, four, five, three. Now, of course, that's 1453, the date of the fall of Constantinople. Now, I thought about this, and I had come in to these places with the standard view, I think, about memory, which is encapsulated by George Satayadas, the Spanish American philosopher George Satayadas' famous remark that those who forget the past are condemned to repeat it. Now, there's a lot wrong with that sentence, and I'm sure a lot that occurs to you. But, uh, but it is also, it is sort of the signature shorthand for the way decent, well-intended people try to think about the past, a more pointed version of the same, uh, it's more hortatory, uh, even than Santiana's phrase, would be the phrase that uh, was first used with regard to the Shoah, to the murder of European Jewry, uh, uh, which is never again, uh, which was actually a, written on a bed sheet when the uh, Buchenwald concentration camp was uh, liberated, but then became a kind of general view. So I certainly shared this view. But when I saw this piece of paper for the first time in my life, and I was already 40, uh, I thought, well, babe, is this right? Isn't uh, all this rhetoric about the past, this, this evocation of what are referred to, and I'll come to this, collective memory, actually, uh, don't, doesn't it actually serve as a weapon of war? Isn't, it, isn't that actually memory weaponized rather than the sane and decent 
respect for the tragedies of the past or the glories of the past, for that matter. So, because in that war in the Balkans, uh, the Serbs, for example, constantly said that they were defending the West against a new Islamic invasion. As to say, they, and you know, how this exactly fit in with the reality of the war, which after all was that the Bosnian Muslims had been in that part of the world just as long as the Serbs had been in Serbia. Uh, but that was the view. So you could mobilize people. This is what I mean by weapon of war. You could mobilize people by saying, you're not just fighting a nasty little civil war in which probably all sides have things to hide. You're defending the Occident from a second catastrophe 500 years after the first. That, and I assure you that in when one went to the military side of, of, of the Serbian side of the line, you know, mostly they were on the high ground and we were on the low ground. So you sort of spent your time looking up and hoping someone wasn't looking down at you with a telescopic sight. Um, the um, people would, ta- would talk about, there were posters, for example, in the military headquarters of the besieging army around Sarajevo, of uh, a globe with, on, the, uh, on top of it, some, yellow, uh, some green paint that was slowly covering the globe. And again, <clears throat> ratcheting up uh, a, a historical, an historical event in order to serve the purposes of a very bloody and uh, criminal war. And so since that time, I have been wondering, one form or another, uh, whether Santiano was right, or at least whether forgetting should be given a chance. As somebody once said of war, I can't remember who... Um, Now, I want to be clear about what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. I'm not flipping Santayana on his head. I'm not saying it's always better to forget. As he said, it was always better to remember. What I'm saying is that there are times when one should at least consider the possibility. I think it's fact, but that's... You may not, many of you will disagree with that. The possibility, at least, that memory is more dangerous than forgetting. Now, you might say, but we don't, you know, we, how can we not remember, you know, the old sort of psychoanalyst joke, think of green elephants or forget about green elephants. I mean, it, so you immediately, you're told to forget about green elephants and what happens It's not the word forget, it's the words green elephants that come into your mind. But actually, it doesn't work like that, because that's, of course, true of individual memory. I mean, it would be preposterous to go out here in this city of all places and tell individuals who lived through the 30 years of war here uh, to forget about their experience, even individuals who who came out with themselves and their families unscathed, let alone, obviously, people who themselves were hurt or who lost family members. That, that, of course, would be absurd. But collective memory, remembrance, isn't memory. That is to say, you can't go into a court of law 
You can go into a court of law and say, I saw the car come around the corner at 160 kilometers an hour. You can't, you can't go into a court saying our collective memory is that this car came around the corner at 160 kilometers an hour. Collective memory is a metaphor. It's, if you like, it's not memory in the literal sense. And even individual memory, just parenthetically, is very unreliable. Talk to any police officer, and he or she will tell you that, you know, after six weeks, the memory of a witness is very, very problematic. And, you know, the risk is that a defense attorney can say at a court, at a cross-examination, well, you really remember that? So what else was on that street? And, and people forget. But compared, at least with collective memory, individual memory on an individual level, on a cortical level, if you like, exists. There's no doubt about that. But there's grave doubt about whether collective memory exists. You, anyway, everyone over... Uh, uh, whatever age since the Good Friday Agreement, everyone else remembers the troubles or whatever they're being called, the war. You don't remember the Battle of the Boyne. You don't remember the Flight of the Earls. And yet both the Battle of the Boyne and the Flight of the Earls belong to the collective memory, supposedly, of people on this island. Uh, the idea is that 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 pe- people talk about collective memory of a past they didn't live through, and I w- the, so the first distinction I would want to make is the difference not only between individual memory and collective memory, which, as I say, I think is a metaphor and not a reality in the sense that individual memory is, but also, uh, you know, that that you are. The, the further away you get from the event, the less you can talk even about collective memory, except in the sense of what a society, and it's a crucial sense, of course, of what a society decides is useful in the past in terms of the present. So, you, because of course you don't remember any of these things, but you decide that event X is relevant to the current struggle or the current regime or whatever, pick your context. And event Y is not. Uh, And obviously it also depends on which side of, uh, you know, given questions, again, it would be absurd of me to tell you about in this city. Uh, And again, I will talk a little bit about why another set of reasons why I think collective memory is very problematic, but that would be the first. Because don't kid yourselves, every version of collective memory is a rewrite of the past or a cherry-picking of the past. You're not remembering every event. You're not even remembering events that at the time were necessarily the most important ones. And of course, your, the, the relevance of these memories depend on where you're sitting, where you are. I mean, someone in, uh, who grew up in Italy will not think, unless they're a specialist in Irish history or are married to or with an Irish person, is unlikely to think the Battle of the Boyne need detain them very long. Um, you know, it's not going to happen. Nor do you, probably, even though there's a World War I 
war memorial out there. Do you, do you think of the Somme, as Dr. Coleman started by mentioning, but you don't think of the Battle of Caporetto, which was the crucial event in the First World War for Italy. You, 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 you think of the Somme, or you think of Passchendaele, or you think of whatever, you know, La Limite, you think of Verdun. So already, collective memory is about what a society chooses to make its reigning dominant version. Now again, in, in the 19th century and in a good part of the 20th century, that was about triumphalist memory. The state was going to glorify itself. So I went to French schools, and I, but I went to a French school in New York, which in my day, in the late Cenozoic, was, uh, uh, was largely made up of embassy kids. Uh, and the, most of those embassy kids came from Africa, or from Francophone Africa or Francophone Asia. So I and my best friend, Sorafong Ratsafong, God help him, he was probably killed in Laos at some point when the communists took over. Um, we used to read from the old French colonial textbooks, which began... Our ancestors, the Gauls, were blonde and courageous. Um, and so, so, you know, that was the version, the triumphalist version, if you will, that w- when I went to school in the late 50s and the 60s, that was what uh, we were taught. Now they'd probably talk about the slave trade. It would be the victim's version of the choice of the past. It would be or about uh, abolition, shell share in the French case. Um, now, that, but either way, it's about a version that makes whatever group is either proposing it or subscribing to it feel either better about themselves or more unjustly treated. It can be either. It doesn't have to be. Well, it can be both. It often is both, of course. Because, you know, the distance between um, glory and martyrdom in many cultures is not very far. So then, if that's right, if memory is not in that sense, history as a proper historian would practice it. That is to say, critical history. A history that, if you will, is not necessarily in the service of the state or the class of victims or whatever group and whatever version of this kind of remembrance we're talking about, uh, the historian wants to make it, by definition, more complicated and usually ends up, even though obviously any number of historians have served the state, that's clear, but history, I think, properly done is critical. I also think, but this again may be my French education, that uh, history is about making the past, giving the past its autonomy from the present. In other words, not using the past in the service of the present, but rather in the words of that uh, the great English novelist E.P. Hartley, uh, who many of you probably will have read his novel, The Go-Between. The first line of the novel is, the past is another country, they do things differently there. And that, it seems to me, is what, you know, history done right does. 
it makes it strange to borrow a firm from Brecht's theater ideas. Um, and that, of course, is the last thing collective memory is about. It's because if that's what you're trying to do, then everybody agrees with forgetting. It's not, you don't just have to be somebody like me who's sort of fundamentally critical of everything. Uh, you know, there's an old joke, two Jews, three political parties. And I, I'm, I'm certainly one of those Jews. Uh, but um, the fact is that if what people are interested in when they talk about re- remembrance is solidarity building of one kind or another. It used to be, you used to be able to say it was nation building. The, the great French historian and sociologist Ernest Renan in the 19th century, when he was talking about his great essay on, nation, on the nation, says, among other things, of course, there's a lot of stuff, a lot of horrible stuff you have to leave out if you want to create sort of national pride, national solidarity. And of course, there's a lot you want to leave out. The most obvious being that if you're doing victim stuff, if, if the version of historical memory that you are uh, trying to uh, promote is victim stuff, you, you, the last thing you're going to acknowledge is an obvious truth to any of us who've been in war zones, and again, most of you lived through a 30 years war, so I don't have to tell you this, which is basically that today's victims can often be tomorrow's victimizers. And uh, that was certainly, I, I covered the Rwandan genocide, or at least the latter part of it, and then the year or two after. And I mean, that was the obvious thing. Here were the Tutsis who were at been one of the great genocides in history. But they, the people who rescued them, the army that came in from Uganda, killed a great many people. Not as many as the genocidaire, but a great many. And that, that, was, that wasn't very long after my life in Bosnia. In fact, part of it was during my life in Bosnia. You know, journalists are serial monogamists. They go, you know, they cover one story and then they abandon it. They divorce it and they go to another place and marry that story. And often they get divorced from that and go back to their first love. But, and that's what those of us who did Rwanda and Bosnia could have been said to have done. But anyway, the, we, you don't realize, you don't have the, in this version of collective memory, that you could be the victimizer. If you kill people, it's in a good cause. You know, it's, 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 it's the right thing to do. Uh, I don't know of any uh, version of collective memory that really includes much self-criticism. Uh, I suppose it's conceivable that one could be created in that line, but I don't. Know of it. Now, again, because I've been often, um, I think, misunderstood, you could just say I didn't express myself sufficiently well. Um, the, um, I am not talking about the living memory of people who live through an experience, forgive the clumsiness of the sentence. Uh, that's another problem. There are problems with that, but they're not the problems of collective memory. They have to do with, you know, the Rashomon effect, to be blunt. So those of you who remember that Japanese movie of the 50s, which is four versions of something. In other words, told, it's, it's four parts, 
and people, uh, the four people in question talk, you know, narrate uh, an event four different ways. And so there is that problem. There are plenty of problems with individual memory, but it is largely speaking a related, but not the same subject. So, so there are two, there's a question of what you think societies are for. Are societies there to praise themselves or to be critical of themselves? It seems to me that collective memory and criticism, self-criticism, don't go very well together. Now, again, there are ways of getting around this. If one side of a conflict wins a crushing victory, uh, they can impose a version of the past on the conquered people. So the obvious example is the victory of, of the United States, Russia, Britain, and France in the Second World War and their occupation, the occupation of Germany by these four powers. And they, in effect, could literally rewrite the textbooks, make it a criminal offense to deny the horribleness of Nazi Germany, quite correctly. But most wars don't end that way. Most wars, as again, I'm not here to tell you because you're living through it, most wars end in messy compromises in which there is no possibility for one side to impose its version on the other side. To the contrary. And that's actually the real history of war. We're, we're often, people look at the history of war in a cursory way, get confused because you have World War I and World War II where unconditional surrender was demanded and given of you know, the, the, the Axis and the Japanese in the Second World War and uh, uh, the Germans in the First. But actually, again, most wars do not end that way. Most wars end much more the way the war here ended. That is to say, with a messy compromise in which the government was cobbled together, made up of senior figures among both belligerents. And that's very common. I mean, uh, you know, obviously, to your cost, given all the current problems with having a government here, of what the price of that is. But it's a, it's a price that a lot of people would say is not just worth paying, but has to be paid because of the realities on the ground. It's very comforting to think that peace and truth and justice all go together. But, you know, if you read a newspaper, you'll discover they don't. It's not, that's not an opinion. That's a fact. Uh, take South Africa, a place where I spend a good deal of time uh, nowadays. In 1994, when the Mandela government, when the, the Democratic government came to power and the apartheid dictatorship was set packing, there was the question that, you know, that challenged the new government of what to do about all the people who'd done all these horrible things in the name of the apartheid state. Now, you could have tried them. God knows most of them were guilty, uh, the people who were named. Or you could do what the South African government, in fact, did, which was to give them a chance to get out of being tried to, to escape justice by simply admitting what they'd done. 
the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, well, there was, no re- there was never any reconciliation in South Africa. Bishop Tutu once said that the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was a gift that black South Africans offered white South Africans and that white South Africans rejected. Uh, and I think there's considerable truth to that. Um, but the Mandela government thought the threat of a second war with the Afrikaners, who could fight, remember, uh, was not worth justice. So they chose, and lots of people within the new government were opposed to this. Don't get me wrong. I mean, the, this was not a decision that was, that was then or is now uniformly reg- well regarded by South Africa. But they thought justice had to be sacrificed to peace and that that was the only choice there was if they wanted to prevent this second war. Now, if you say justice is worth... I'll give you another example. Bosnia, the peace in Bosnia was extremely unjust. It rewarded the aggressor government. Uh, it, it allowed the Serb statelet to continue and Milosevic the president of, of what was the, the rump Yugoslavia in the day, who'd started all the mess, was allowed to escape unscathed. Now, later, he, he overstayed his welcome and did Kosovo, and people weren't willing to put up with what he did twice. But, again, the people who made this very unjust peace in Dayton, Ohio, in 1995, thought better, uh, better peace and justice. Truth and peace could go a lot better than uh, truth and justice or peace and justice because there is no reason in principle, as the South African example shows, why you can't do the work of finding out what happened as long as you're not asking anyone, as it were, to pay for their crimes. Now, I lived in Sarajevo during the siege, and without being lurid, uh, the things that I did, let alone the things I saw, make me personally prefer, if I have to choose, peace to justice. Uh, uh, and, but that's, you know, that's an opinion. You're, there were plenty of people in Bosnia who said, we shouldn't have peace, we should go on fighting, because we want justice. And there are people in the human rights movement who say there's no authentic peace Without justice, you were just talking about the absence of war. But I have to tell you, after having spent 20 years of my life covering wars, I'll take the absence of war. Thank you very much. Um, I don't... uh, So, again, collective memory is... Coming back to collective memory is a way of talking about the present and the future. It's not a serious way. Past the death of the deaths of the people who experienced the event, as the people with individual memories of it. It's not something that is necessary. It's something that is made. It's an artifact. It's it's an intellectual, moral, cultural creation. That's why when people say, to come back to something I was saying much earlier, when people say, but you... You have to remember, whereas forgetting is unnatural. The truth is, to use Nietzsche's phrase of active forgetting, collective memory is active remembering. In other words, it too is a society's decision. And this can be very explicit. The first example of active 
forgetting of, in praise of forgetting, if you'll forgive me from pillaging my own title, was the Edict of Nantes by which uh, Henry IV, King of France, tried to end the wars of religion. And the Edict of Nantes begins, you are commanded to forget. Now, the King of France, he was not a stupid man, Henry IV. He's the man who said he was the Protestant King of Navarre when he was offered the throne of France, or at least he said to have said, uh, when he, was, he had to convert to Catholicism, obviously, to do that. He said Paris is worth a mass. Um, but Henry IV uh, understood perfectly well that people weren't literally going to forget. He meant that the society would not acknowledge the past and move away from the schisms of it. And who knows, it might have worked. He was assassinated by uh, uh, an extremist Catholic who, who uh, didn't like Edict of Nantes very much. And so we'll never know if it could have worked or not. But certainly... It is a possibility, and that is all I'm talking about when I speak in praise of memory, of forgetting. It is that it should be a possibility, that it is not necessarily always moral to remember and not always uh, immoral to forget. And then lastly, let me finish with the grim bit, as I usually do. Uh, you think the other stuff was not was grim. <laughs> you ain't seen nothing yet. Um, everything will be forgotten. Everything. All societies. A Colombian writer, a friend of mine in Medellin, called Hector Abad, wrote a wonderful book about the murder of his father, which roughly translated can be called in English the forgetting that we will be. That we will be. And, of course, I mean, if you think in terms not of a human lifetime, but in increments of a thousand years, that's self-evident. I mean... Everybody knows that somewhere. But, you know, La Rochefoucauld said no man can stare for long at death in the sun. So we forget about that for a bit. But it's true. Even Hitler just talked about the thousand-year Reich. He didn't talk about the eternal Reich. I mean, that's surely an extreme case. You can't imagine that in the if there is a human species that we don't either blow ourselves up, not least courtesy of a certain president I know, um, or, uh, you know, global warming turns out to be the apocalypse that some people think it will be. If there are human societies in a thousand years, they will be very different, and they won't be thinking very much about what happened a thousand years earlier, any more than, you know, we're thinking about, the Europeans think about very much about what happened in the 10th century. I mean, some people think about those things, uh, but you certainly aren't thinking about them the way you're thinking about the bombing in Omaha. They're not pressing things. They're interesting. You know, the monks, the whatever, Charlemagne, whatever you want. Um, in that sense, because there is one final justification for memory which is fundamentally a moral thing. We must remember because it betrays the dead to forget. This is an argument made, for example, by post-1945 Jewish theologian Samuel Falkenheim, for example. No posthumous victories for Hitler by forgetting, which is one of a phrase I'm not 
saying it exactly as he said it, that of Falkenhurst. Um, but everything will be forgotten. And if that's true, and I believe it's not only true, but alas, incontrovertible, then we have a choice, even about what, as societies, we choose to commemorate, or if you prefer, remember. Thank you.